You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and also an LLS volunteer. I want to thank all of you so much for joining us for this episode. Today, we're going to be discussing the role of the advanced practice provider, nurse practitioner, and other members of the multidisciplinary healthcare team in treating newly diagnosed patients with myeloma, supporting patients regarding their concerns prior to active treatment, and when starting treatment, access to this treatment, monitoring, and managing side effects, as well as patient and caregiver education. And I have to say, thankfully, this is all relevant and important information because, unfortunately, myeloma is common, and It is a chronic disease in many ways. And so as we start patients on treatment, I think the early part of their care probably sets the stage for the rest of their care over hope we hope will be years and decades. So today we're joined by Dr. Daniel Verena, who is a DNP, also an acute care nurse practitioner in the multiple myeloma program at the Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York. Uh, Daniel, uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Dr. Miller, and thank you to the LLS program. I think this is a great thing to do. Thank you. So I want to start out by sort of setting the scene, what I think might be the scene, but I'm happy to get your feedback on it. There are some types of cancer where the presentation is acute, the treatment is very acute, and the outcomes are known pretty quickly, such as acute leukemia. And then there's other cancers which are, you know, more of a chronic disease. My own view has been myeloma has become a chronic disease. So let me ask you about that. How do you look at myeloma, both as acute and chronic? And then we'll talk a little bit more about surviving in both of those settings. Absolutely. That is a great question, I have to say. I would say it's acutely chronic at times. I think it can be insidious in its presentation. So patients can just have very vague symptoms of pain, discomfort, or fatigue. And then sometimes they actually, on the acute end, they can present with like a bone fracture or a cord compression. Right really in renal failure, right, from the hypercalcemia or the elevation of some power proteins. So I would say that it has an acute presentation at some points, but I do agree with you that I think since I would say in the last five to 10 years, we've had so many new therapies come to the FDA approval that we really are looking at it as more of a chronic disease compared to it being a treatable disease for two to three years. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually seen this throughout my career because honestly, when I first treated people with myeloma, the average survival was two years. And that was with two transplants. Yeah. Yeah. Now, thankfully, I think we're looking at 10-year median survival or something close to that. Absolutely. With the induction of novel agents and the new monoclonal antibodies and really looking at all of the new clinical trials, looking at bispecifics, bites, and really the new indication of the CAR T-cell We've really, 
given our patients a true, I really don't even know how to call it. Is it a buffet, a smorgasbord? Is it the, you know, the 64 crayon box with a sharpener in the back options for them right. to literally be treated? So, you know, I have to say this is very different than a lot of the situations patients face with other types of cancer. So I'd love it if you can sort of walk us through, uh, and I really want it to be based on your own day-to-day experience, but what is that patient experience like? What are the discussions like between patients and uh, the care team? You know, when they're diagnosed, what do you say to patients? How do you sort of frame this whole illness? That's a great question. And I think it's very individualized from that new experience with the patient in front of you. I think my perception, my philosophy is I'm there to guide them, support them through their journey. And I always tell them that we're going to be together for a very long period of time. This is not a, you know, a quick sprint. I'm here to guide you on all your symptoms, treatment, and any questions. And everybody says there's no such thing as a stupid question, but it actually is true because I tell my patients, if it's new to you, then it's a new question. I may have heard it, but I'm there to help you. But I think even my role is to be kind of the almost the empty center of information. So I'm there to help coordinate also supportive care. If it's for oncology, for pain management, getting social work involved, getting physical therapy involved, and even getting with, you know, the the financial toxicities that we are in the United States and insurance problems is getting our, even our pharmacists involved in all the other support groups that we can to help our patients pay for some of their therapies. And it's telling them in my day, I literally say to them, they're caregivers because I want their perception. And, you know, there's all those commercials that say she has prostate cancer. He has prostate cancer. And it's not just the person who has cancer, who's going through their own grieving moments. It's all their support systems around them. So you've got to find out all of everything optional for them. And I'm really kind of that person. You're the policeman. You are the traffic controller in reality. Yeah, and I can imagine it. Let me put this out there, and I want to get your reaction to it, but I have to say my experience has been often patients and families will share more of their emotional journey with the rest of the team, including nurse practitioners, nurses, medical assistants, than they do with the physicians. But what's your experience with this? I think it's almost like the trickle-down theory. So I think patients used to think you know, doctor knows best and they would just mm-hmm. listen and see what goes forward. And then when the nurse came in, they would just express their own, like for emotional support. Yeah. I think the role of the advanced practice is kind of a hybrid in between that we are there to help guide them and educate them and do the proper testing, whether they we feel it's necessary for new bone marrows or other PET scans that need to be done. But again, also give them that empathetic support. Interesting enough, sometimes my patients actually will tell my nurse more than they actually tell me because they feel that we may withhold therapy. And then even in my own role going forward, it's kind of changed a bit too, that they treat us more there. But just to add to this, I think with all of the support groups out there, the paradigm has changed into more of a shared decision-making. It's patients are actually quite educated and are willing to discuss clinical trials and what's out there and ask the physician and their staff their opinion, not just wait for their decision. Yeah. Well, let me put it as a question. The shared decision-making, and in fact, probably the, in many ways, proactive patient decision 
investigation decision making. What's that like for you? I always think it's best to give every patient, every family member, every option that's available for them at that time of diagnosis, whether it's offering them, which I think is extremely important, offering them clinical trials that are available, and then discuss the current treatment paradigms they have, whether they should be getting four drugs, an immunomodulator, antibodies with a protozoa inhibitor and some dexamethasones, or do we feel maybe three drugs might be better? You know, it's giving them the spectrum of what they should be having, but also taking into account what is their quality of life? What are they looking for? Are they looking to be more active and treatment just steps in, or they want to be extremely aggressive and do everything they can? Or do they just want to be able to just have the most mild treatment possible to keep the disease in control so that they can enjoy life to the max, but not have side effects? So I think it's really looking at that. So let me ask you a little more, maybe in a sense, more specifically. I mean, patients are facing a life-threatening disease with myeloma and a life expectancy that's unclear. So how often do patients ask that? Do they say, Doc or Daniel, my team, how long do I have? I think that is one of the most challenging questions to ask or to even answer. Because like we've said, patients are now living five, 10 years longer with multiple myeloma. And we do know that myeloma is a disease of the older adult, right? Median age of diagnosis is 70. But we do have a large population of young adults, 30s and 40s, who are coming in. So I always say to them that, you know, yes, you may read in the literature that this is the life expectancy, But I also tell them that that is older data looking at survival rates from drugs that are not being used currently. So the introduction of looking at the monoclonal antibodies, looking at the ADCs, right? You're looking at these other new mechanisms of actions, the XBO inhibitors that are not included in that life expectancy age range. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at what we had before when we treated with Velcade Revendex, but we don't know really what the new life expectancy is now that we added daratumumab, right? Your monoclonal antibodies, yeah. the ezatuximabs, the elatuximabs. Right. I call it the mab, mab, mab world, but it is looking <laughs> at those things. And that's what I say to them and giving them the hope that even in the last five years, we've had six new drugs come out to FDA approval. Yep extends their lives. And then with all the strong clinical trials that we have with the new bites and the bispecifics and CAR-T, giving them that hope, saying that, you know what, this is a longer living. I have many patients personally that we call functionally cured, that they have no Mm -hmm, measurable mm -hmm. disease by MRD negativity for years without being on treatment. So giving them that hope and not putting a stamp on it, I think is important whether they're in their 30s or whether they're in their 90s that I have. So I have to say, I remember many, many years ago as a fellow, a patient with lung cancer saying to me, how long do I have? And I have to say, it was one of the few people that asked me, but I said, you know, I don't know. And then he said, no, but I want to know. And I said, I'm not in charge, more metaphysically and spiritually. He said, Doc, I'm not leaving here till you tell me. So, and I want to ask two things. How often do patients sort of bear down on the issue of how long do I have? And how do you respond to those levels of sort of wish on a patient's part? I always say to them, I, like you expressed, I don't have the yeah. crystal ball. 
I can't tell them expectancy. What I think is important from my standpoint as a, an advanced practice provider and from healthcare yeah. end is give them the facts. Say to them, mm -hmm. on these certain treatments that we gave, we know that patients can be progression-free survival two, three, four, five years on their first line of therapy. So explaining right. it to them from that point of view helps guide them. I can't say to them, unfortunately, you may die in six months, but I do give yeah. them the fact that if they have high risk characteristics, right? If we're talking about the 1Q gain, the P53 mm -hmm. deletion, the translocation 414 or 416, which are considered high risk characteristics or poor prognostic factors in myeloma, mm -hmm. explaining to them that these may be a challenge and accelerate their progression, but understand that we are there to help support them and try to actually combat it or change their treatment sooner than wait till later. Absolutely. And it's a reminder to me, as someone once said to me regarding my wife who had AML and is thankfully doing well, but cancer doesn't read the book. You know, we read the book, but cancer doesn't read the book. So it's variable. Absolutely. <laughs> cancer has a blind eye sometimes. No, it's true. So I really want to get into your experience on the front line. And it's a broader issue in oncology, but again, when you're talking with a patient who's about to start treatment for myeloma, whether it be with two or three or four drugs, what do you share with them about sort of risks and side effects? And what do you sense that patients either grasp or don't grasp about what they're embarking on? I think it's when it comes to newly diagnosed patients and the day that we sit with them and their caregivers to discuss their treatment, I think it's always important to have one or two other people in the room because you always want mm -hmm. another set of ears. Because, you know, patients, yeah. even myself, you're only going to listen to 10% what you have, and then you have the yeah. Charlie Brown want, 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 want sound for the next 25, 30 minutes. So I do talk to them about all the risks and benefits. I'm going to go over every detail of the side effects of each medication that we're going to be on. So if it's Velcade, I want to explain to them. It could be constipation. It could be diarrhea. They can get peripheral neuropathy. It can cause cardiac events. And the same thing with even lenalidomide, talking about the risks of DVT or blood clots or PEs and telling them the rash. Giving them the broad spectrum of every single side effect that can occur with all the drugs and giving them the ideas that these are the more major side effects versus these are the most minimal ones that you may see. But I feel right. if patients hear it, it sits in the back of their head. So if the side effect actually occurs, it's less anxiety driven. And they said, yeah. oh, yes, I heard that before. I know it happens and I'm going to let them know, but they don't think it's something new that nobody's ever seen before. Right. Yeah. Which must be reassuring. But I think it's important each step. And I always tell my patients, so when I meet them and my staff meets them, the healthcare provider team meets them, we go over the same side effects. Our pharmacists meet the patients when they go into the treatment area, they go into the rooms and rediscuss the side effects of the treatments. They make a phone call prior to the patient coming to discuss the side effects. So they, they repetitive information helps guide them and give them the support. And it's always having that extra yeah. person. And I always tell them to designate one healthcare caregiver who we can talk with for anything that's else instead of having five different members. So I'm going to ask, it may be a tough question, but 
Honestly, acid just personally interests me about life and about medicine. I had some major surgery about 11 years ago. And, you know, when I think about how much did I really grasp signing a consent form of all the possibilities? And I mean, you know, on one hand, I grasped it all. I grasped the possibility I might die. And on the other hand, I grasped 10% because it's basically was the best alternative to not doing it. So let me ask you the same question in multiple myeloma. What is your sense? Are patients getting, as they hear all this, and you were talking about sort of the first things you hear and the rest you don't hear, what percent are they very broadly in oncology are our patients getting of uh, the risks and side effects? I think in reality, personally, they may get 10 to 15% in that first meeting. They hear the name of the drugs, they write the name of the drugs down, and their caregivers are there and they write the name of the drugs. And usually it's somebody else that's writing down all the side effects to them as they go along. And we always give them some supportive material to read at home about the drugs themselves, but they're not hearing it. And a lot of times we get, and just like you said, you only heard a portion through your surgery at first, because when the patient actually talks to our pharmacist or meets with the infusion registered nurses for their first time getting their treatment, they turn to the infusion nurse goes, I don't remember them saying that. And it's, and what I feel is that it's not a discredit to the healthcare providers that are talking to them. It's an acceptant barrier that they only heard the name of the drugs. Oh, I only knew I was going to get peripheral neuropathy. I didn't know a rash. And then they hear it again. And then it's our job to go back down. Sometimes I'll go to the infusion center and really support the patient saying, here's what we discussed. And they go, oh, yes, now I remember. So it it takes also a familiar face to bring back the memory and hearing the information again. I think every time, I mean, every time I, I talk to a patient, I've had patients have myeloma. Now one patient I had, she has it for four years. She says to me, I still don't understand what a plasma cell is. And it's been four years oh. later and you say the yeah. same thing. So, you know, it's, right. it, it becomes a fun jest and it becomes a time of just educating. I think as healthcare providers, what our job is, yes, we're here to support you. We're here to try to control and get your disease in remission, but we're also here to be your educator every time. Yeah, it's a good point. This is our life. And prescribing these drugs and watching immunoglobulin levels and M-spike levels. But patients' level of understanding sequentially over time can wax and wane. So yeah, it's certainly, it's challenging and it's certainly interesting and wonderful challenge. Let me ask you, with patients started this initial process of starting treatment, in your top tier of what you counsel them about, what do you bring up as the risk? And then I want to move on to what's the feedback you get one, two, and three months and six months later. So I always, the high risks, I mean, I always say in honesty, I'm going to bring the bigger side effects of each mechanism of action of class of drugs that we're giving. So if we're giving protein inhibitors, I'm going to definitely tell them about the peripheral neuropathy and the skin irritation and the constipation. When it comes to your immunomodulators like lenalidomide or pomalidomide, you definitely want to bring up the risk of a, a DVT or a PE and the rash 
I always put it under the umbrella and tell them that all therapies, whatever their mechanism is, is always going to drop their blood count. So the red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets, thrombocytopenia are the most common when it comes to treatment. So I want to tell them that that's the common th foundation through their treatments. And usually in their first to second cycle, they'll have the most side effects until they become accustomed to it and until we find the right levels to treat them on. And bringing them, I mean, steroid. Some patients love a steroid and some patients hate the steroid. Some of them think it's the best right. experience and then the caregiver thinks it's the worst experience because they got to deal with them on a steroid. So those are the risks I tell them. And I do bring up, and I'm very honest with them, I will say to them, there's always a risk of death in any treatment. Yeah. There's always a risk yeah. for death. And it's something not to minimize, but not to also make it very profound and say you will right. die. But understand yeah. that any treatment, and I even bring up, we grew up on taking aspirin, solve the world. But there's a risk of taking an aspirin. You can die from taking yeah. a, an aspirin. Yeah. But we take it blindly now, right? Oh, I took an aspirin today. We don't think about yeah. it. Telling them that yeah. there are other risks is being honest with them. I think being transparent yeah. is important. So how many years have you been practicing? I've been in hematology for 18 like years. Me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. See, we went to fellowship together. I've been doing hematology for 18 years, and I've been really focusing yeah. on myeloma for the last 10 years. So let me ask you, within the last 10 years, yeah, what's your view of the patient's experience 10 years ago, newly diagnosed, and newly diagnosed now? I think newly diagnosed then, it was a little more cloudy because we had less options. Yeah. I think we were able to say, here's what we can give you. This is what the expected life expectancy, giving you two transplants, and here's the side effects. You know, you might be tired, fatigued from there. I think now, ten, even 10 years later, I'll even say three years later, I think the options are tremendous. I think patients have a brighter light. We have more to offer them. We're not just the tip of the iceberg. We're literally, we have so much more deeper than the iceberg below to give them that yeah. hope. And I think hope is important, right. but I also think hope with realistic goals is also important. Yeah. I call it a prescription for hope. How do you give that prescription yourself? Are patients asking for it and how do you use that? My personality and people may joke, I tend to be more like a Patch Adams. I'm very... I want them to enjoy their experience through this journey of treatment with myeloma, whether it's in the care at my cancer center or outside and at home. And I want them to try to enjoy each term, whether it's bringing levity to them at the time that we first meet or being there to understand the struggles they might have financially, emotionally, psychologically. It's kind of understanding where they are in their journey and how to get them through that and bringing that hope saying that you know what this might be a rough spot for you now and we're going to make it through together and we're going to bring everybody yeah. in to help you i may right. and my honesty to them is i may not be able to bring you back to what you were four years ago but i'm going to bring as close to you or get you back to as high as functioning that i can so you can enjoy life yeah which honestly is probably the best we can give to patients is to, you know, to maximize uh, their quality of life. Um, this is a very general question. I don't know what the answer is, but that's why it's wonderful to have an opportunity to ask you. 
You know, we talk about cancer survivorship, and there's, you know, patients who are what has been termed acute survivorship, which is the time of diagnosis and treatment. And there's patients who are in long-term survivorship, where they're beyond treatment, and they're three, four, five, 10, 15, 20 years out. And then there's patients living with cancer. Myeloma, in many ways, those patients fit in that category. How is that type of survivorship different than the other two? Like we said earlier, we've been doing this for so long together. We never had the opportunity to really understand and develop a survivorship for myeloma patients. When they were only Mm -hmm. living two years, there was no time to say, here's a survivorship. It's now become, like you said, 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, patients are living with this as a chronic disease. And it's an educational opportunity on both ends. So as healthcare providers, we have to learn how to support them in many different ways. We may not be giving them chemo treatment. They also might be on a maintenance treatment, five milligrams of some oral medication like lenalidomide that you see them every three, four, five months. It's also then us guiding and educating our patients to separation anxiety. They go through an empty nest experience. Now they leave the cancer center. They don't know what to do with themselves because they saw you once a week, twice a week, once a month. And now I'm saying to you, you are basically functionally cured. I won't see you in six months. I had a patient. I said to him, I don't need to see you for six months. He looked at me. He goes, I can't. I have to see you in three. I said, fine, because it's it is a relationship you have. It's developing programs that we can help guide them through. And I think we're learning because our patients live longer. Yeah, all true. All true. The same question about caregivers. Initially, this was a so much a disease with a very short life expectancy, and now it's more of a chronic disease. So what are the issues you see for caregivers? Correct. I think whether it's the partner, their family, extended family who bringing them there, it's also understanding what their limitations are. Do they have enough of support? Does the caregiver still work? It's also educating them on the side effects, the short-term side effects, And as we mentioned before, with survivorship, what are the long-term side effects that you have to deal with or start to hand with? And I also think it's important to have survivorship programs for the caregiver. It's being there for them. I know in oncology, like we've talked, we became very patient-centric, but we really have to look at it as an entire village-centric. It's everybody who's involved in that has to be there. So it's me providing them, again, with social work support sometimes psychological support, getting them involved in support groups through LLS, through IMF, through the MMRF, all these groups that are there so that they could reach out and be able to express their frustrations or concerns to somebody who understands. Because I say to my patients, I am not in your shoes. I can't say how I know how you feel because I don't. And neither Mm -hmm. does the caregiver know how the cancer patient feels but we're also not the caregiver either. And we have to understand from right. their view what they need. Yeah, It's very strong, um, it's very frustrating. Well, it, thankfully it's such wonderful work that we all do and what a privilege to do it. Let me ask you about 
as you look at the patients you've treated over the last decade, but what are some of the late, uh, some, well, let's break it down, the, uh, some of the more acute issues, and then what are some of the late and long-term issues that patients are dealing with this chronic disease? So in initial diagnosis or acute, the patients can come in with extreme back pain or cord compression, so losing mm-hmm. function of the lower extremities. They can walk in the door acutely with having a fracture, reaching for a cup of coffee, and their humerus fractures because of mm-hmm. the myeloma creating a lesion through that bone. So those are your major ones, or going into renal failure and having to be put on dialysis for a short period mm-hmm. of time to try to recover functionality through to the kidney. That's more of acute stages. When you start talking about long-term effects, you're looking at some of the side effects from the drugs. So looking at permanent peripheral neuropathy, right? The numbing of the hands and feet, them not abling to button or hold things or not being able to drive because there are no drugs, you know, might getting dexamethasone can increase cataracts. So vision changes, weight gain, cardiac toxicities from some of our drugs that are out there from the carfilzomib can cause cardiac toxicity. So again, long-term effects, even with stem cell transplants, there are always long-term effects going forward. And then mentioning going backwards for a moment, you know, in our younger patients, our 30, 40-year-olds is really discussing fertility. I think fertility preservation is sometimes overlooked because we're so used to treating a 70-year-old that we don't take into consideration and understanding some of the psychological stressors and the physiological stressors that we need to deal with very quickly to treat them if they wanted to start a family. So those are more of the chronic, you know, looking forward, it's more of a chronicity. And then looking at the deterioration over time from the patient fatigue, muscle wasting, and then eventually as the disease progresses that you're going to have renal failure or other toxicities, they may go on dialysis down the line in their Mm -hmm. journey with myeloma. They may at some point go on to dialysis because the disease progressed that it actually shut down the kidneys. So preparing them to understand that the caregiver might have to also understand these side effects going forward. So it's it's an evolution from acute, but some of that acute can evolve into a chronic. So let me share an anecdote, and, I'm, and I'd love your view on it. I had a woman I took care of with myeloma for a, about eight years. She was in her 80s at that point and had been through many lines of therapy for myeloma and done well for many, many years. And then, honestly, the disease changed and progressed, and she died. And at least for myself, my thought was, geez, you know, couldn't I pull this something else out of the hat uh, with all these different drugs? But unfortunately, myeloma is a cancer. So, you know, what's your experience in terms of caring for patients for many years, of the patient's experience and the caregivers and your own experience when you've been through all that? And unfortunately, someone gets worse and dies, is dying of the disease. It's a very difficult position to be in. I think through my experiences, every time I see my patient, I'm always thinking of what options are available at the time that we're treating them and then what's available at their next relapse. But understanding that even keeping, and I think keeping in the forefront of my mind is really the option of clinical trials. But clinical trials Mm -hmm. also have their own limitations and exclusion criteria that sometimes our patients don't meet, whether it's because 
they're too frail, they have too many comorbidities, it's too challenging for them for travel. So those things become one of our bigger barriers. But it's moving forward and always presenting the patient with the options. I will tell them, and I think in my own personal style, is I will tell them that these are what we have left, but we're getting close to running out of what standard of care options are. And then if they don't really meet criteria saying, you know, here's where we are, if a clinical trial opens up, this could be a possibility. We understand here's where we are, what's available off the shelf and presenting that to them. But I think what's from my perspective and what I think in the healthcare world is I love speaking to like yourself and other colleagues and saying, what have they done? Putting different medications into different combinations. I will say in our institution, we also do a lot of precision medicine, looking at mutations Mm -hmm. through the sequencing and using off-label medications to sometimes target specifically for the patient's mutation. So the KRAS mutation and things like that, using Venetoclax, looking at that for the translocation 1114, which is still not indicated in myeloma, but it does Mm -hmm. have through the Bellini trial, it does have a role and it does have an effect on the patient's disease. So really looking at those options too, but again, always telling the patient, here's where we are. This is what right now is available. And as we get closer, leading them into that degree, I agree with you. It is still heartbreaking whether I know them for two years and whether I know them for 10 years. At the time, that we've run out of the options, I think one of my biggest challenges is to say goodbye. And it's really not goodbye, it's just helping them to the next level. Yeah, and thank you. That's a very important perspective for all of us. Dan, what other issues are important to you as a practitioner and an expert in myeloma? I think in the myeloma journey, I think access to clinical trials needs to truly be expanded. I think one of our greatest Mm -hmm barriers is it's very academic centric and it's really getting the community centers more involved, but us as academic centers, supporting and educating the community centers to help expand these accesses to socioeconomical suppressed areas, different minorities, so that we can get a more robust demographics in our clinical trials. I think that's one of our biggest things we're doing now, and it's important. I think also One of my goals is to try to support, I do a MGUS and smoldering clinic with AML. I do amyloidosis and the Waldenstrom's kind of like an indolent Waldenstrom's and actually looking Mm. at these patients and what are their challenges from a psychosocial and even offering them clinical trials. How can I treat them sooner before the disease becomes active? I think those are the biggest things where we are in the myeloma world. I mean, I think we can learn a lot from breast cancer because breast cancer offers a tremendous amount for patients. I think offering them more support, just like with LLS and the International Myeloma Foundation and the MMRF, are really looking how do we expand the support going forward and are making us more global than more local. As you look at your practice with patients with myeloma and related diseases, What do you see as sort of the next set of challenges moving forward? What are the things you're excited about? I am extremely excited about all the new clinical trials, like we've said before. I think I'm extremely excited about 
the perspective of the bites, looking at the bite specifics and their role, the expansion of the CAR T cell programs, you know, Ida cell being the first CAR T cell on commercial, but there are many others in the pipeline looking to become FDA approved. I think I'm very excited in that perspective. I think our biggest challenges is still access to other treatments. Yes, I'm an academic center and I do sometimes have an advantage to access to many different molecules and drugs that are available, but really in the community center, what is feasible? What is accessible? I think we need to educate our support, not even educate, I think we need to really support our community healthcare providers, physicians, APPs, RNs, pharmacists, and helping them guide patients on the side effects and being there for them as academic centers, that's our role. Like being at a university, our role is to help foster this relationship and build it and so that they could give the care to our patients locally and not make them come in every time that yeah. I need to see them. I feel like those are the challenges. I think financial toxicity has really become above and beyond. It's the tsunami of the cancer world. I think trying to figure out how to support our patients on fixed incomes as the cost of medications grow. And giving them best options might not be reasonable because of financial limitations. So I think those are our bigger challenges. So I want to thank you for everything you brought up, but I have to say your point about financial toxicity is really well said. Let me ask you one more question on that because we don't talk about it much, but can you give an example of financial toxicity, the down and dirty of it? So just talking about an induction therapy. So we're looking at giving them bortezomab, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. We know that even in oral drugs tend to have a, a higher an appeal rate. Insurance companies, you know, nobody wants to pay twelve, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars a month for a treatment. And a lot of times insurance companies, our patients have a copay of five hundred, mm-hmm. it could be five thousand yeah. dollars a yes, month. Yes. And what I find interesting and it is sometimes disheartening is patients don't tell us upfront of their copay. So they incur this financial burden and they come to me with a bills of $20,000 because this is their copay to keep them on treatment. So I think it's us as a system, I'm going to say a system, being able to quickly evaluate a patient's financial availability, but then being able to get support like through LLS, like through the IMF, Mm. through all these other, through pharmaceutical companies to give them financial support to pay for these medications so that patients do psychosocial. They should not be worrying about, it's almost like, am I going to get a meal on the table? Am I ever going to allow to have a treatment this week? Because I can't pay for my pills. So I, I think that's where we stand. Absolutely. And thank you for shedding a light on it. So I would like to uh, firstly say what an incredible episode this has been and talking about very significant real life issues for patients newly diagnosed with myeloma, both in the past and now. I'd like to thank Dr. Daniel Verena, who's a DNP and an acute care nurse practitioner at Mount Sinai Medical Center. Dan, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Dr. Miller, and thank you to LLS for this wonderful program. I think it's very helpful for our patients and caregivers. This is Dr. Ken Miller. I want to thank all of you for listening to this incredible episode. For a listing of all of our healthcare professional 
continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org ce. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists will provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. I wanted to share with you that the LLS Copay Assistance Program provides assistance toward the cost of private Medicare, Medicaid, and TRICARE insurance premiums and treatment-related copays and co-insurance for prescriptions, drugs, labs, scans, tests, etc. Please visit the website for a full list of covered expenses at lls.org slash copay. Award levels vary by disease fund. LLS appreciates your partnership, and we're excited to let you know that we will be launching instant decision in our copay assistance program this coming November 2021. That means no more waiting and getting a decision on an application in real time, and patients have immediate access to funds. I want to encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at lls.org slash podcast. We look forward to you joining us for future episodes. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org ce. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.